Hello, everybody out there. Welcome to our next episode of Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm going to be your host. ODAT is an acronym I learned as soon as I got in the rooms of AA. Stands for one day at a time. It didn't take long to realize that that just applies to everyday life as well. So I created Staying Fit ODAT as a community for people who are dealing with any type of struggle, whether it be alcohol, drugs, anxiety, depression, overeating, or any type of other mental or physical sickness that you can think of. Uh, If you are looking to do any type of physical activity and live a healthier and more fit lifestyle, then this is the community for you. If you just enjoy listening to the podcast and hearing the stories of recovery, knowing that everybody in the end is going to come out on the positive side, then I also encourage that. Please like, share, subscribe, and anything else you can do to help spread the word out, get the podcast out there, and to help continue spreading awareness and continue powering on the message. Uh, You can continue finding us for anybody who is active and identifies as one of us in the community. You can find us at Fit. ODAT on Facebook and join the group. If you are a supporter and you do not identify, you can continue following on Instagram at StayingFitODAT. You can also feel free to email at StayingFitODAT at gmail.com or reach out to me directly on Facebook at Miguel Reyes. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, anything at all, whether it be about the podcast, any of the pages, or if you just need someone to talk to. Uh, With that being said, I'm going to bring on our next guest today is going to be Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer herself didn't identify as an alcoholic for a long time. Uh, What started off as just a no-drink January for many years turned into a no-drink 2020 and had a lot of inspiration and motivation for the reasoning behind that. Uh, So at this point, we're going to go ahead and bring Jennifer on and let her share her story. Welcome. Good afternoon. Welcome, Jennifer. How are we doing today? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Welcome on our next episode of Staying Fit ODAT. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves to our listeners, who you are, where you're from, what you do, any of that fun stuff? Uh, well, my, you know, my name is Jennifer Fox. I live in Chicago, born and raised. Um I run my family vending company. I've been there it'll be 21 years in May. It's hard to believe how fast time flies. And I found my way into your group through my sobriety journey in 2020. Awesome. Well, we're definitely happy to have you. Um, I know you have uh, your own group as well, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your child or actually, sorry, uh, what was the last, uh, fitness thing you did? What's the last thing you did to stay fit? Well, my, my part of my 2020 challenge was to run a 5k every month for a year until I could run 3.1 miles without stopping to walk because I'd never been able to do that. So I kind of always have fancied myself a runner, but I've never actually been able to you know, stick with it long enough to be one. So I started last year out not being able to run even a mile without stopping to walk. And I ended my 2020 with three back-to-back half marathons. 
Um, nice. The last of which I ran in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I ran that entire thing without stopping to walk once. So um, that was pretty awesome. I'm training this year for a couple of different races. We'll see if they actually happen. The big goal is the London Marathon, which I am on a team um, to run in October. So I'm real finger, like strong fingers crossed for that, that is one. super cool. Do you have uh, a, I know, I know. Do you have a goal yeah. time there or is, is it? God, no. Okay. <laughs> I have my, I have a goal to finish. Um, oh, that's I mean, good. That's a hell of a goal. Yeah. I, I'm running with the Team Heron Project, which I know we're going to talk about. I'm so pumped about it. Actually, the story about how I discovered Heron Project is pretty cool. So I'll share that with you too. But I'm on their team and it's the day before my 48th birthday. And I am pumped. I'm really excited about it. So that's my my goal this year. That's super cool. Super cool. Uh, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood and growing up and, you know, all of that, uh, that normal stuff before the fun starts. Yeah. So I had a great childhood actually. Um, you know, my dad started a business before I was born and so it was just kind of ramping up as I was in my young years. And my mom was a very traditional stay at home, you know, cooked every meal kind of mom, very active in our lives, had my sister and I in tons of activities. And then when my younger brothers came along, but it was 10, I was 10 years old when she went into her first 28 day program. Um, I very distinctly remember crying and saying to my dad and my sister who were explaining to me why mom wouldn't be home for a month uh, because she was an alcoholic and me crying and saying, no, she's not and being very protective of her. And then my first Alateen meeting when I was 10 years old, um, we we were asked to you know explain or to talk about how we first knew our one of whoever our parent was in the program, um, how how we knew they had a problem. And a young boy at the table was talking about how his mom kept her booze underneath the kitchen sink. And I remember that moment because I felt this like feeling of dread come over me as a ten year old because my mom did that. And I never thought that wasn't normal. Like, that's just what I thought was, you know, I just thought that was totally normal because it was normal. We only in my know house. what we see. Exactly. So, you know, my dad did not, I don't really recall my dad drinking at home. He wasn't a big drinker um, and never drank at home. But my mom apparently drank beer every night when we went to bed, when she was like doing laundry. And I mean, looking back now, they had a, they had a, she was not, they were not happily married. So she was a very unhappy stay at home, traditional housewife. And so I think that's really where her problematic drinking started. And then it just really snowballed from there throughout her adulthood. So, I mean, my memory of childhood is really positive. I had a great life. My mom was a wonderful woman. Um, as I grew older, we nicknamed her crazy Kathy for good reasons, because she was just so much fun. And she was that spontaneous mom who would pile us all into the car to bring us to Six Flags on a Saturday on a whim or, you know, she just, she really was hands-on. And as kids, little kids, we would not have known that there was any issue. So I've, you know, had a good life. Now my parents' divorce started when my brothers were in like mid to late grammar school. And that's when the wheels really fell off the bus in the Fox family. Um, so they got, they got the brunt of a very dysfunctional upbringing, um, much worse than my sister and I. So it, it sounds like, uh, if, if, if 
people are the ones to use labels, so to speak. It sounds like your mom would be the quote unquote functioning alcoholic definitely while you were growing up then. For sure. Yep. Yep. No doubt. Yeah. And it's, it's, and I think I, I share a lot about that in my story as well. Um, I had one of those childhoods as well, where my dad was very, very active alcoholic, even through my entire childhood. Um, and yet a lot of my childhood memories up until one, one specific memory that I talk about up until that, a lot of my memories were very positive because I didn't really understand drinking to be a bad thing or a negative thing or have bad consequences. I just, I actually took it as the thing my dad did. And he kind of went from a normal person to kind of like the fun personality person. So I always thought it was kind of a cool thing until I started getting old enough to see bad things going along with it. Um, yeah, same. Yeah. So it, it seems like we're in the same boat there. Um, so uh, now correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I, and I, I know we talked about this a few minutes ago um, before we started, but I want our listeners to understand. So this story is, and this episode is going to be a little bit different in the aspect of the very first episode we had, I had on a buddy of mine who doesn't really deal with substance. And I shouldn't even say doesn't really, he doesn't deal with substance abuse at all. He had a way different recovery story. He was in prison for a long time and then turned his life around. Um, everybody in between then and now has been someone who dealt with substance abuse themselves for many, many years. Um, and they were kind of telling their own story. But today we're not just telling Jen's story. Um, we're telling we're telling the story of almost her entire family. Um, yeah. her brothers, her mother. So uh, listeners out there, you're going to get to hear pretty much like she said, when the wheels fell off of the Fox family, I'm just going to pretty much quote her. I mean, you're going to hear a lot of of what was going on in in her family because it wasn't it wasn't her specifically that was dealing with this, the substance abuse. And although you have a little over a year sober now, it seems like and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to speak on your behalf, but it seems like um, you although you knew you had a bit of a drinking problem, it seems like you just learned from a lot of your family mistakes and kind of wanted to stop before it got really bad, almost before you had some of those stories or became the same story. Is that? Yeah, no, that's a really good way to put it. Like I I always, yeah, I always tell people rock bottom um, isn't, it's not an event and it's not in a place. To me, it's, it's when you stop fucking digging. And uh, someone, someone kind of said that quote to me and uh, I added the F-bomb in because we're all adults (laughs) here and uh, it just kind of fits the nature of what we're doing. Um, but that, that quote, I heard it, uh, I think a few months ago and it is, it is stuck so, so hard with me. Um, so with that being said, in that little segue, why don't you go ahead and tell us now kind of how this whole story intertwines and, and tell us how this works for you. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're around addiction your whole life, which basically I have been, um, you see that there's, there's so much shame around an addiction, an addict, somebody who struggles to not, you know, not use whatever it is that are abusing. And my mom really was the epitome of a shame filled person her whole life. But it's very clear to see that now that she's gone. Um, She passed, by the way, in 2016 from lung cancer, but it is nothing short of a miracle that she did not 
drink and drive and kill herself or overdose. I mean, the end of her life is a fairly tragic, sad, sad story. But, you know, early on, I, and now looking back, there's just so much shame involved. And then when my brothers both, you know, have struggled with addiction and my youngest brother, Justin, ended up a heroin addict and he overdosed and died in December of 2018. So I certainly witnessed, thank you. Um, I certainly witnessed at, as myself being an adult who could really comprehend what was going on, I could process that shame I was seeing in him and he and I even talked about it. And quite frankly, I was probably the queen shamer in my family of my mom and siblings um, for all of the grief and destruction that their addictions caused over the years. So um, my story is a unique one in that it was definitely, I mean, I certainly have struggled with my own abuse of alcohol over the last several decades. I can't really, I mean, the first time I had a drink isn't something that's memorable. I couldn't tell you when it was. I'm guessing I was probably 14. I mean, saying that age seems appalling to me now, but I was 13 going into freshman year of high school. And I know it was sometime in early high school. So 13, 14, 15, somewhere around there. And I didn't, I, I mean, I was often the designated driver in high school. We were a responsible group of kids. I was surrounded by drugs. I went to a high school in the city of Chicago. So I was exposed to a lot more, I think, than had I gone to a different school. Um, but my mom's sister was in a, a very active member of AA when I was young. And she told a lot of horror stories. So I think that really helped um, repel me from ever having any desire to do any kind of drugs. I mean, I, I think part of me recognized that I'm a little bit of a control freak. And so there was a fear of like, oh, what if I like it? Um, there was a fear of being high for that many hours. I mean, I'd have friends tell me stories of like, you know, a trip they were on that weekend and they would talk about being high for 10 hours. And I remember thinking like, that sounds horrible. Why would anybody want to do that? But <laughs> I, you know, but I certainly drink, you know, I drank alcohol with my friends, like, like what would be considered normal kid partying. And then I think um, when my parents divorce started that summer, I also unfortunately was sexually assaulted. So that those two events um, really kind of threw my life into a slow tailspin. So I, once I went to college, you know, I had a fake ID and I was, I went to DePaul, I was living in Chicago. I was you know, footloose and fancy free, which is a nice way of saying being an idiot. So, you know, I mean, I, I enjoyed my younger years, but I didn't look at it as something that was necessarily concerning, but into my mid twenties, by then it was definitely on my radar because of my experience with my mom and my whole life. I've been told you're just like your mother, literally my whole life. People have been telling me that. So I always knew in my gut like this could become a problem. It's a slippery slope. And then into my thirties, you know, there's a lot of pressure on young women to get married and have children. And not only was I not feeling a pull to do that, um, I just also wasn't in a good place myself. So I vacillated through some pretty unhealthy drinking habits through my thirties. But remember through all this time, I had started working in my family business at 26. So I had a solid foundation. I was a hard worker. I was showing up. It wasn't necessarily disrupting my life in a way that was measurable that, that gave me pause. So I just kept on doing what I was doing. And 
um, I think it was probably in my late 30s, my late, late 30s when I met who would become my husband. And when I met him, he was less of a drinker, but a, a weekend partier, you know, and I, I grew, I, it was a pretty late age that I understood that partying meant doing blow. So anyway, <laughs> I, you know, so I found that out once we were dating, I didn't really know that, but he, he didn't, I mean, that was never something that was part of our relationship that I knew of. He just became more of a drinker. So then through our relationship, which started in 2013, early, like January, we married in late 2014. And holy cow, our, our marriage was just a disaster from get-go. Instead of him lifting me up and making me better, which is what I was, of course, hoping for, uh, I think I brought him down in the drinking department. He became a huge drinker in our marriage and was ultimately drinking a bottle of whiskey every day. Um, and then it was the year Justin died when he was primarily sober that he ended up telling me that he had smoked crack with my husband at one point in 2016. I was like, well, that explains a lot. So, I mean, I, I guess I just went through all sorts of information, but once Justin passed in the end of 2018, I really ramped up. My drinking became completely unmanageable. So it was already unhealthy. So that's not to discount the two decades prior of probably some unhealthy living. Um, but 2019, I threw an epic pity party for myself. I was in the throes of terrible grief over losing my baby brother. Um, I was with him the day before he died. I had to drive and identify his body in the hospital with my dad. So seeing your baby brother dead on a table intubated and gone is an image that you just never wipe from your brain. Um, and it was hard. 2019 was really hard. And so the end of that year was, was coming up. It was probably um, late October, maybe. And at this point, mind you, I had already been kind of a voyeur in some drinking groups on Facebook. Like it was already tugging on my heart for many years. Like not wanting to live the life I was living. And I kept seeing this advertisement for a live a great story sticker on Facebook. I'm a sucker for Facebook advertising. It's really, <laughs> it's really quite sad. But um, so I had not sent out the thank you cards for um, the wake that we had for my brother that traditionally you send out. And side note here, I don't know who came up with that tradition, but it is the dumbest thing ever that after you're in the throes of grief from losing someone you love, you have to thank people for being decent human beings and showing up to their wake. But anyway, so I still had all of these cards in a box behind my desk. I had not thrown them away. It was almost a year after he had passed. And one night in my office, I had this idea that I was going to write a thank you letter to everyone who was there for me over the past year, me and my family. And I was going to, I bought all these live a great story stickers from their website. And I put one in every letter and I sent them out to all the people. So, you know, probably, I don't know, over 200 people got a letter from me and it was right before Thanksgiving, which is my favorite holiday. And, uh, I sent out this basically a thank you letter with a live a great story sticker, imploring people to live a great story because Justin couldn't figure out how to live his, that was the basic premise of it. And after I sent it out, I, I received a lot of emails and texts and phone calls from people thanking me for their letters, showing me where they put their sticker. And it was in that whirlwind, probably in the, you know, the very end of December, beginning of, or very end of Jan or November, beginning of December, that 
I just realized that I was a fraud. Like I had written this beautiful letter. Writing happens to be my my passion. And so I had written this letter and all of these people were moved by it. And then I realized that I wasn't even taking my own advice. Like I wrote this letter and I was not living a great story. I was living the most pathetic, horrible story. And so what, what is normally a dry January, which I had started doing back in 2015, I decided that I needed to do a dry 2020. I just had a come to Jesus, be honest with yourself moment and thought, alcohol is the thing that's standing in your way. Alcohol is the thing. If you look back on your life and you think of the worst things that have ever happened to you, alcohol is part of nine out of 10 of those stories. My sexual assault, um, you know, that was, I was drunk at a party the summer after high school, the senior year of high school. And it's not to discount the person who did that to me, um, but he too was drunk. And so I, I have a very realistic um, ownership perspective of what happened to me. And I recognize that had I not been blind drunk and unable to, you know, push him off, I, that likely wouldn't have happened because he didn't aggressively, you know, it wasn't like somebody grabbed me off the street and dragged me into an alley. I, you know, he very well may have um, felt that the consent was me not really reacting at all because I was too drunk to. So that's a whole nother story. But the bottom line is every bad thing that's happened in my life, in my family's life, with my mom, my brothers, it was all somehow related to substance. And I just couldn't ignore that anymore. So I set out to do a dry 2020. And like I told you, um, when we chatted before we started recording, a friend of mine at the time said, well, you're not going to tell people that you're quitting drinking for a whole year, are you? And I was just like, yeah, why? And he said, well, aren't you worried that people are going to think you have a problem? And I'm like, I drink a bottle of wine a day. That's a problem on anyone's measure. And frankly, sometimes sure. more, you know, like no one is going to hear me say that and be like, oh, no biggie. So yeah, no, I, I'm not, I'm not in this life to not be authentic. Like it is what it is. I'm going to do it and put it out there. And um, that's just always been my style. I've kind of always been an open book and I didn't feel shame about it. And perhaps my exposure to how much shame there is involved in addiction my whole life kept me from ever allowing myself to feel that shame um, because I see how destructive it is to a person and it kind of keeps them in that terrible habit loop. So I set out to 2020 to be sober and through that journey, I've just found this, what I like to say in my group, this big, bold, beautiful life that I'm super proud of. And quite frankly, it's the, I'm living the life at 47 years old that I have literally been dreaming of as an adult woman for 20 years. And so, you know, I couldn't ignore the fact that the one major change I made was eliminating alcohol pretty much the rest of my life has stayed the same. Um, aside from incorporating running, which now I love, I do all the same things. I mean, granted, COVID put a bit of a wrench in that, but I mean, I'm still around people that drink. I'm still, I, my social life has only changed in that I'm not sitting in bars, 
but that's a positive change in it, you know, in my opinion. It's so, crazy how we find out that the world doesn't stop when we stop drinking. Like it continues yeah. going and we can still do all of these things sober. Like it's, it's crazy that like our brains tell us that it's like, we, we think we're going to be missing something, but no, it's, yes. it's, it's almost, it's the exact opposite because you remember everything. So I almost feel like you've missed nothing at this point now. Well, it's, oh my gosh. So there's a quote that I, I, and I don't know how the, the exact quote goes, but it's something along the lines of everyone gets the same 24 hours in a day. What sets us apart is what we do with them. I've always loved that quote. And when I quit drinking, I was like, holy crap, I get like six more hours out of every day because sure. you figure, you know, if you, if you drink for four hours in an evening, it certainly takes two hours in the morning minimum because you're in fog, you're, you're foggy. I mean, if you even drank just a little and had a slight buzz, you still don't feel great in the morning. You know, you're not a hundred percent. So that made me think of that quote so much last year is, man, you know, this is for me. And I recognize, by the way, I think this is a good time to, to interject. This point is I recognize that there are people that struggle much more than I have with stopping drinking or whatever it is they're, you know, whatever substance they're using. Um, so me giving up alcohol very quickly last year became something about addition to my life instead of deprivation. So very quickly, I wasn't looking at it as I can't drink alcohol because I had committed to a year and then just put it out of my head as like not an option because I made the commitment and off I went very quickly, it became about what I was able to add to my life because I wasn't drinking. So pretty quickly, it became exciting. I had more time. I had more energy. I was in a better mood. I, so um, it was through the journey of 2020 that I recognized that for me, it was like, I, this is no longer about whether I can drink in 2021 or not. It's about the life that I wanna live. And I have never, ever, as an adult, been happier or healthier, ever. And that's not, I'm, that's not dramatic or an overplay. That is the truth. I, I recently found a couple journals from my early 20s, and I was a little entertained by that version of me and what she wrote. But mostly I was sad by the things that she wrote to think that all I needed to do back then was to eliminate alcohol from my life. You know, I didn't, it took me this long to figure it out that the life that I was yearning for every day was just on the other side of my last drink. Like that, that to me is so powerful. So it would be impossible for me to ignore that, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I couldn't agree with you more there. Um, and, and a couple things that you did mention that have, um, that kind of really stuck in my head that I want to, I want to backpedal and, and touch back on a few things. Um, first off, uh, doing the, the no drink January that you did starting in 2015. Um, I just find that really interesting that it started in 2015, um, for you because the very, very first time I ever tried to quit drinking and, um, I didn't even call it trying to quit drinking because I had zero intention of quitting drinking permanently at the time. Um, I just called it a no drink January. And the, the only intention was actually just to get back in the gym and just to start working out because my roommate at the time um, was a completely shredded, um, 
military reserve guy. And I just kind of, I kind of just got jealous because I had gotten all fat and sloppy. Um, and that was my exact intentions. And in 2015, my favorite college football team made it to the national championship. And I think I was like three or four days into the month. And it was actually a bet on top of that with two of my roommates. And I actually bought out of the bet like four days into January. And it was, <laughs> I had, I had zero control. So just hearing that you were able to even just do no drink January for many years up until 2020, I commend that. Um, Cause I, I, terribly failed there so there was a funny little story about my fail um but i think it's also really really cool um and we talked about this a little bit before um the the, the just coming out publicly and saying you know i'm quitting drinking i'm doing this for this long because when i tried that no drink january four people knew i didn't really have accountability everybody that knew i was pretty much betting with so they all made their money so to be honest, after that day, they really didn't care anymore. They pretty much, it, it, it was what it was, but to hold yourself accountable and to say, I'm not drinking for a month or I'm not drinking for a year. And to say that out loud, even if people think you have a problem or, you know, whether you do or you don't, um, I love that accountability because that was something I had to do in the beginning. Um, I immediately said to my family, I quit drinking. I'm an alcoholic. I went to a meeting last weekend. And then I started telling people and I started telling more and more people. And then I started this Facebook group, um, staying fit Oda and I, you know, being public and telling everybody. And, and one day my wife said to me, she goes, you know, do you ever fear that one day you might want to start drinking again? And she wasn't asking me from, um, from the way you were saying where she was asking for herself because she doesn't drink at all. She, she doesn't have an issue and she just doesn't drink, but yeah. she, I think she was genuinely asking me because she know me for so long. And she said, do you fear that? Because you know, do, what if you drink again? Um, you already told everybody you're sober. Like, doesn't that scare you? And I said, no, it's accountability. The fact that I already told the entire world I'm sober. I started a Facebook group. I said, if I ever even want to drink, I'm going to look like an idiot. I said, so if that's, if it's anything, it's even another thing helping me hold myself accountable. Yeah. I know that there's, there's just so many people and you have to stay sober for yourself. And that's the most important thing. And I want all of our listeners to know that you can't do it for other people. You can't do it for your family. No, um, right. They can be inspiration. They can be motivation, but you have to stay sober for yourself. Otherwise you won't stay sober. Um, that's right. the only thing I, I won't tell anybody how to stay sober. Other than that, you have to do it for yourself. Um, but to hold yourself accountable and to, to start a group, I think it's really cool because it helps bring other people in the community. It helps bring other people into a safe place. It helps give other place, other people a place to share. And with that being said, everybody listening to this podcast knows about the community that I've started. That's why they're here. That's why they're listening. So why don't you go ahead and take this time to tell us a little bit about the community that you started as well, doing the same. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with you on the accountability. Um, I don't know if that was my conscious motivator at the time because it was just what I was doing, you know? And I think I knew that everyone, everyone who knows me associates me with wine. So I just assumed over time, people, you know, I was gonna have to tell people. And I'm also authentically an open book. So, you know, to, to a fault sometimes. So I'm not somebody who could ever go around and like live with some charade of being something that I'm not. But also I wanna point out that, you know, my, my relationship with my mom as I grew into adulthood became very contentious around her drinking. 
and then subsequent pill addiction. And so she hated me for ever talking about anything. And I used to tell her that it was my talking about things to people that kept me out of a padded cell as a young person. <laughs> so um, because it was really hard when her addictions ramped up and that probably you earlier talked about like your dad and you know when it really got on your radar that it was a problem and when I was in high school um, my, you know my mom would pass out in the bathtub and I would have to get her out of the bathtub where the water had already drained out of the tub and like she had cigarette ashes all over her and she would deny that later in life. And I was just like, mom, no, no child would ever concoct this memory in their head. It's so painful. Like For sure. that, you know, me and the boys, all three of us had to do that. And so it, the, I think part of what drives my ability to share and being very comfortable with sharing is knowing that it was the shame that kept my mom sick for decades. And I never wanted to be that. I never wanted to live with shame about anything. I wanted to be authentically me and be proud of that person. And being proud of that person takes work, right? You have to do things that you're proud of to feel proud of who you are. Um, so that's just kind of always been my baseline. So starting out the year, it was early Jan or early December when I decided to do this dry 2020. And I was in a drink a group on Facebook that no longer exists, but it was called Women Who Don't Drink. And I met this girl, Emily, um, who lives on the East Coast. And somehow we had decided to do this Dry 2020 challenge together. And she's married with children. So she did not have the kind of like daily bottle of wine drinking habit, but she was at the very, very top of that slippery slope where she was kind of noticing herself reaching for a glass of wine more often than made her comfortable. So I think the challenge intrigued her because she was just kind of like, hmm, I'm drinking more, you know, and that's concerning. Where I was like full blown drinking hardcore every day and knowing that I needed to stop. Um, so she just like through Facebook Messenger one night, and I distinctly remember this because I was buzzed up at the time. Um, <laughs> she sent me a message like, well, maybe we should create a group for the year long challenge. I, you know, I wonder how hard that would be to do. And I responded, well, it can't be that hard. And I got on Facebook that night and created the group. And so it was just completely on a whim. And I named it Dry 2020 Honey because my baby brother, Justin, who had passed away, he used to call me Honey Bunny all the time. And like in a, in a joking, like, you know, sarcastic way. So Justin was 39 when he died, but he was like, had the mental maturity of a 12 year old. <laughs> and in, in like the most charming way, he was just the comedian of the family. He was the jokester. He was always playing around and, and just a lot of fun to be around. So we had a family wedding in August of the year he died. And I had texted him like, what did you bring to wear to the wedding? It was in Colorado. And his response was, don't you worry about it, honey bunny. So, you know, that was just his personality. Um, so I named it after him and that's how it started. Now it's called dry 2020s, like apostrophe S honey. Uh, I didn't know what else to change it to. And we all decided as a group to keep it going. So I think there's like 350 people in the group now, which is really cool. Um, but sometime like mid last year, I actually started sharing a lot of stuff, maybe a little earlier on my own personal Facebook page too. So I would write something for my dry 2020s page and then copy it and put it on my personal page. And it was when I started sharing on my Facebook page, my personal page that wasn't private, 
that I really started to feel empowered by the responses I was getting. Um, and that's when people started private messaging me that were like, you know, just either just saying, I love what you wrote or saying, I'm really proud of you or saying, I've struggled too. And your posts are really inspiring to me. Just wanted to let you know. And um, that was when it really clicked for me that like the sharing component, helping people get past feeling sh ashamed of needing to evaluate the relationship with alcohol, that's really become my core passion and mission. People who have very um, real addiction problems that need some real professional treatment, whether it's AA or some alternate, you know, substance use disorder help that you need to get. And there's no shame in that either. But I think that there's a huge swath of the population that are struggling with their relationship with alcohol, just like I was, and they're afraid to address it in any measurable way because they feel like they have to call themselves an alcoholic in order to do that. And there is such a stigma around being deemed an addict. And there's so much shame around that, that people ignore the fact that they have an unhealthy relationship with it because they don't want to call themselves an alcoholic. And certainly there are some people that are alcoholics and, and do need to address it in a more professional, formal way. But I think there are a lot of people just like me that have gone down the slippery slope of abusing a substance, in my case, alcohol, and their life has become unmanageable and it's not the life that they're proud of and they're not happy, but they just cannot grasp looking at alcohol and saying, this is the one thing that needs to go and everything else would just fall into place. And that is literally what happened for me. Um, I eliminated alcohol. I committed to, to get not drinking for all of 2020 with the idea that like come 2021, you know, my goal, my challenge was over and I could do whatever that I wanted. And what, what happened in 2020, what grew in 2020 is this life that I've been dreaming of um, that ha has brought me so much joy and happiness and health and fitness. And I, I'm in the best shape of my life. And so now when people ask me and I get asked a lot, so are you gonna drink again? I always tell them, you know, that question is not, that answer is not what you're looking for. You want me to say I'm gonna drink again because you have some insecurity about your own drinking and me saying I'm gonna drink again makes you feel like, oh, okay, so my drinking's normal. I don't need to give it up for a year because you did that, good for you, you dropped 40 pounds and now you're back like the rest of us, a normal drinker. Um, so what I tell people, I try and frame it with for them to say, I'm never gonna tell anyone I'm never gonna drink again. That was never my goal. Um, it was never my end goal. My end goal was to live a life that I'm happy and proud of. And so I would be foolish and insanely irresponsible if I did not recognize that eliminating alcohol is what handed me this life that I have now. And I would never give that back. So does that mean that I'll never drink again? Probably, yeah. Um, but for me, because it was never a craving for alcohol to begin with. Like I gave it up and I didn't think about it again. I didn't have a hard time giving it up for a year. And that sounds crazy, right? I was drinking every day. So most people say to me, how did you just go from drinking a bottle of wine a day to not drinking? I'm like, well, I quit cigarettes the same way too. I smoked two packs a day and 18 years ago, I put them down and I've never smoked again. It's kind of how I'm wired. Um, 
But so the way I look at it now is I have this life and I know for sure that I will never give this life back. I would never trade this life for the one I had ever. And so I just don't have a lot of time in my day to drink alcohol because I would never give up the any number of wonderful things that I do in any given day so I could sit and drink ever. I love it. Um, yeah. And so it's like all the things that I enjoy and that I love and that bring me joy, none of them involve alcohol. And frankly, when I look back, they really never did. I do all of the same things I was doing when I was drinking. I just do them sober and they're better than they were. Life and continues. like you said, when we were chatting earlier, cause I, I remember it all. First of all, it's amazing. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's so amazing. And, um, I know, I know for me personally, um, I know when I, when I started working my program, I know one of the first things I learned and one of the, first, uh, one of the things I try and keep myself grounded with every day, um, is I, I, I should never tell myself that I'm never going to drink again because I don't, I don't have that control to know what's going to happen down the road. Um, but I know that when anybody ever asks me, um, do I plan to drink again or do I want to drink again? Um, I always tell them that I never planned or wanted to stop drinking in the first place. Um, so I'm just trying to get through life one day at a time. And I think, yeah. I think if you just answer it like that, I think that it's just like, holy shit. Yeah. That guy just answered. Yeah. I, mean, I think that just answered. There's really no reason for anyone to even hit you with a follow-up question after something like that. I think it just, and it really is. It I mean, it's one day at a time. And obviously that with, that's the name of your group. That is a core principle in AA. And I think it applies for so many things in life. It is one day. I mean, you get one day at a time. Absolutely. And if, if COVID, I mean, COVID showed us so much, right? But COVID should have shown everyone that the amount of control you think you have is not, it's non-existent. It doesn't exist. Something like COVID can come around and disrupt your entire life and what you think you have control over. So it is one day at a time because we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. And so my whole focus of last year was like living a great story. You know, I, I carried that sticker that's, I have that sticker all over the place. I have it on my visor in my car, my desk in my office, my water bottle I carry every day, um, my laptop. I mean, always reminding myself, like, I don't think that anyone's great story involves raging alcoholism, you know? And I, I think that my story is a great one because I focused on my relationship with alcohol and making it a good one. And what that looks like to me is not drinking it. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's the, and so when people ask me, I'm more interested in giving them not the answer that they necessarily want to hear, but one that will make them think. And at, right before I came home to do this with you, I was at my office and I had a meeting with a longtime friend of mine. Um, a guy named Dan, who I met 20, 20 years ago, he works in my industry. He's somebody that it calls on me and he would have been a big drinking buddy of mine. So not too long ago, he had sent a text just kind of like, um, you know, hope you're doing well, miss having drinks with you, yada, yada. And my response at the time was, well, I don't know what you missed because I'm right here exactly where you left me and we can get together anytime, anytime you want, we can get together. My drinking or not drinking should have no bearing on what we do. 
So today he brought in this product rep into my office. And so we got onto this subject and I love talking about it. Um, and he was just like, he looked at me, first of all, he's like, you're like half the person that, cause I haven't seen him since pre COVID. He's like, you look like half the person that you did before. I'm like, well, I lost 40 pounds. I'm five, five. I mean, that would, <laughs> that would probably be shocking to yeah, somebody who sure. hasn't seen me in a year. But, um, I said, you know, he's like, well, we're all getting together for drinks later. And I know you don't drink, but if you want to meet us out, I'm like, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm supposed to go to dinner with a friend. And I said, you know, the funny thing is I'm the exact person I was drinking, except nicer. Because when I drank, I got to a certain point where I became a little snarky. Um, so I was definitely not the person that turned into the happy fun drunk. And so if anything, like I'm a much better version of myself sober because I'm equally as outgoing and fun. And then I just continue that way instead of at some point getting angry. <laughs> um, and so I think it's, it's for, it's finally settling into people like, wow, she's really serious about this. Like she just doesn't drink anymore. And that's that, like, she seems like the exact same person she was, except she's just not drinking. And I'm super enthusiastic about it. And I like to spread that message and I can see it when I planted a seed in someone, whether they say it or not, because the ease in which I talk about it freely about my own abusive tendencies and then how great my life has been, you can just see that little flicker in someone's eye that I've, I've made them think. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And it's really uncomfortable for people to say forever. I mean, when I started with the dry Januaries, I can tell you that I felt so amazing towards the end of each January. And I would have that little flicker of, I feel the way I have dreamt of feeling. Like this is the way I wanted to feel, but I couldn't wrap my head around the concept of never drinking again. So I would just go back to drinking and then pretty soon the habit loop would start and I'd be right back to the volume I was before and right back to the self-loathing and the shame and feeling terrible and, you know, being chubby and not getting exercise and all of those things. But I could not look long-term sobriety in the eyes and accept that like, I would never drink again. That was just too hard to fathom. So when I committed to a year, that seemed like, okay, a year's a long time. That's a big commitment, but it will get, obviously a month isn't enough. So obviously I am able to give up booze for January, no problem. And that's not changing my relationship because I'm going right back to the way it was. So the year long commitment for me was certainly the key because it just put enough space between me and drinking where I focused on other things and created this life where now I'm like, well, if I were to go back to what I was doing before, then I would literally have no one to blame but myself because I have all of the information now, including clearly the ability to not drink without any issue. So why would I ever go back I to think you're doing what I was doing that had me living a life that I was so ashamed of? Definitely spot on there. Um, and, and perfect segue into the next part of the episode because um, you mentioned uh, a few things. Um, first off, being down, uh, uh, a you said a little while ago about being the best shape of your life. Um, you also mentioned being down 40 pounds. Um, and then, uh, you know, having room for, for other activities and other things in your life. Um, so let's talk about how uh, fitness has become a huge part um, 
and you know how you've worked fitness into your life and let's talk about running um you know and your your most recent races upcoming race goals let's talk about all that fun stuff yeah okay um so i would be considered somebody who is naturally thin all through childhood and teenage years and even midway through my 20s probably so i never had to work at it and i'm being 47 if you were i don't know how old you are but you know, back when I was growing up, fitness was not what it is today. So it was just not something that was considered, you know, something people did daily. Or nobody was promoting that as like the, the norm. Um, but I was always into it. I mean, I remember joining the gym in Lincoln Park when I went to DePaul. And I, so I've always been into some level of working out. I've run 5Ks before. Um, I've done a Ragnar race before. I, I hiked seven days to Machu Picchu about 10 years ago. So I've always like been into physical fitness and struggled as I got older, as a lot of women do and certain probably men too, you know, with just hormones changing and your body changes and drinking was a huge part of the roadblock between me and having, you know, having a fit, healthy body. So I vacillated through different levels of fitness my whole adult life. And I always wanted to be a runner. I cannot tell you why. Um, I don't know where it comes from. I was on track and field my freshman year of high school. I thought like the, the training runs, the long distance runs were brutal. Um, so I was never a good long distance runner, always felt like I was going to keel over and die. And so I always quit. So really that goal that, that was tandem to my sobriety goal of 2020, that goal of running was not it wasn't only about running. It was to train myself to not quit. So in my mind, stopping to walk when you're running was quitting because when I was running, I could breathe fine. My legs did not hurt. It literally feels horrible because running is hard. It's really hard to make running feel easy, right? When you're running outside, it is what it is. So, um, when I, when I committed to that goal, it was to teach myself to not quit when things get hard. So it just kind of an interesting tandem challenge for myself next to quitting drinking. And then I, because I had stuck with it, I, my January race of last year, I actually ran 3.1 miles without stopping. So I conquered my year long goal in month one, but I will tell you, it was a little 5k in San Antonio, Texas. And I was probably a hundred yards from the finish line, maybe not even. And I almost stopped and walked the rest of the way. That's how much I felt like I was going to die. Um, I, I, I can't explain to you how hard it was to run that last block. And that seems so ridiculous to me now, but at the time my brain was just saying, this is terrible. You should stop. What are you doing to me? So I stuck with my goal. I continued with races. Obviously um, my last live race was March in Austin, Texas. And then April, May, and June were all virtual races because of COVID, but I managed to find live races every month after that. So my first live race, was in July in Estes Park. Um, and then I just continued on and ended my year last year with those three half marathons. The first was in New Hampshire. I ran that with my Heron Project teammates whom I had never met before. So that was amazing. And then my second one was in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was the Good Life Havesy and it was very cold. And then um, the last one was in Biloxi, Mississippi along the ocean, which was awesome. And I ran that without stopping. So my fitness goals in last year, I mean, 
came to fruition and I'm super proud of that. My goals this year are, I have a half marathon that I was signed up for that got deferred, the rock and roll in Nashville. So I'm signed up for that at the end of April, assuming that it happens. And then I'm also signed up for the Glacier Half Marathon in Montana. And that's, I think in June. And then I'm on a Heron Project team for a Ragnar race in the Pacific Northwest in July, again, assuming that happens. And then the London Marathon, I'm, I'm on Team Heron Project for October. So, you know, my fitness goals also all came together once I eliminated alcohol because I had the energy and the time and there's so much personal pride in knocking off your physical fitness goals. Um, and you know that, you know, so I feel better than I've ever felt. I certainly, I'm a hunt and not that the number on the scale matters. So I'm only giving this to you as a measure of where I was and where I came. I was 169 pounds when I started this journey. Um, I remember standing on the scale and seeing that number and feeling like I might throw up because I just couldn't believe that I had gotten to that weight. I, I just, I've always, you know, I, I was, I took my ease of staying thin through my twenties for granted, for sure. And um, so when I saw that I was teetering on 170 pounds, that was just like, holy cow. And I'm now 127, you know, I vacillate anywhere between 127 and 130. And I, and the number on the scale, I, I genuinely don't care about um, because I feel great. So to me, that's what I go by. I'm, I was never, I was going for a 40 pound weight loss simply to have some kind of a measure, a goal to attain. Once I reached 129 pounds, I didn't care where I went from there as long as I stayed, you know, the, the size I am and feel as good. So I imagine as I've incorporated some weight training and stuff, I'll, I'll gain some weight poundage wise, but I've never felt better. I've never felt more confident. I've never felt prettier. I've never, I've just all of those things. I mean, all of the things that I've struggled with that many women struggle with every day have just kind of disappeared from my fitness journey, which has been amazing. It's the best feeling in the world. That is, that is so cool. And, um, I am gonna, I, I do want you to go ahead and, um, pretty much finish us up talking about the Heron project a little bit and what that's about. But before we get into that, I do want to take a second um, and also thank you because uh, one, one virtual race that you forgot to mention that you participated in recently, um, you want to, you want to tell us about how, how that went for you. And uh, I know you got stuck doing it on a treadmill, but do you want to tell us about that? I know it was terrible. If you know, the, having to do and I didn't listen I could have I could have sucked it up and gone outside I was a baby about it but it had snowed here and I have this like terrible paranoia about blowing out my knee running outside because I'm not a seasoned runner and I don't have all the gear and stuff so I ran it on my treadmill the metrics stink on my treadmill so it's always longer um but it felt the funny story about that race doing your your first inaugural race um which I loved being a part of was my dad was coming over for dinner and I had told him, you know, the time to come over, but he's 82 years old. And it turns out that old people love to be like inappropriately early for things. So I'm running faster than I normally run on my treadmill. Cause I use my tread for, you know, nice, easy training runs, a lot of heart rate zone training. Um, so I'm running harder and faster on my treadmill than I typically do. And my phone starts ringing and it's the lobby. I live in a condo building. So I know it's my dad needing to be buzzed up. 
And if I buzz him up, I'm going to have to get off my treadmill to open the door. So I keep declining the call and pretend like just ignoring him and figure he can wait in the lobby for 10 minutes. And he kept, he kept calling me back. And I finally answered it and I can barely breathe on the tread, right? I'm running as hard as I can. I'm like, Dad, I'm in the middle of a 5K race. I'll buzz you in, but you're going to have to wait in the lobby. It was hilarious. So. That is so great. Uh, oh man, I'm so glad we got back into that. That is such a great story. That is so cool. <laughs> and then he uh, comes Mr. up and he falls asleep on my couch. I was like, "Hi, Dad." Mr. Fox, if you find your way listening to this episode, I'm I, I'm sorry. I'll take some responsibility for having you wait ten minutes. I apologize. <laughs> um, for anybody that doesn't know, we are talking about the uh, the inaugural ODAT OMAT. It was the first race of the staying fit ODAC community. Um, you'll probably hear this talked about on a few episodes um, coming out re uh, soon because I have a few recordings lined up this weekend and pretty much everybody I'm recording with participated in the race. Um, so I want everybody to tell their little story. Hopefully they're half as funny as that one because that was so <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, anybody... Uh, it, it was, it was really cool. And Jen did the 5k with us and keep an eye on, I believe, I think I tagged you yesterday. I believe your shirt. You did. For my shirt. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, so you'll be getting that soon. Um, no one, no one knows yet. And you're actually the first one hearing this, but there's a, a cool little surprise. My mom is a big supporter of the community and she put together a, a cool little, uh, yeah, you, you'll see. Um, nice. Yeah, it's it's something to go with the T-shirt, so it's it's really cool. Um, awesome. But uh, now that uh, now, yeah, as we get into the end of the episode here, why don't you go ahead? I know we've mentioned the Harem Project a few yeah. times. I know it's something you've talked about a lot. I know it's something that means a lot to you. It does. Um, so yeah. definitely, why don't you take the next few minutes and tell our listeners about that? Awesome. Um, so it was pretty early on. I don't know if, you, well, I think we found each other in the running motivation group on Facebook, right? You and I, I believe so, okay. So you're, and I'm assuming a lot of your members are familiar with that group. So there's over a hundred thousand people in that group now. Um, so you can appreciate how hard it would be to stumble upon every post that's ever made, right? Because there are countless posts every day. Exactly. So one day it was like late February or late January, early February of last year, this guy had posted in the running motivation group. And his post, I don't know if you perhaps were in the group and remember it, but his name is Glenn Harrington. And he posted in the running motivation group about his journey to sobriety and that he was a heroin addict, a recovered heroin addict. And I think what um, initially sparked my interest to read it, because it was, lengthier than most posts was he resembles my brother a little bit, Justin. So that's what probably caught my eye, I'm guessing. And then I read it and I got choked up. I remember reading it at work and because it made me think of my brother. And here's this guy who struggled like my brother, but he has found his way to the other side, which, you know, sadly, most people that go down the road of mainlining heroin don't make it that far. So I loved his post and I wanted to share it in my dry 2020 group. So because I have a love of writing and a reverence for the written word, I didn't feel comfortable taking his post, even though, you know, you can copy and paste things from there. 
So I private messaged him and just said, hey, I saw your post in Running Motivation Group. I gave him like a footnote version of my story and said, I'd love to share your words in my drive community, but I didn't want to do that without your permission. And so then he wrote back right away and said, hey, thanks so much for reaching out. Of course, if you think my words would help, please do share. But, you know, I also think that you might be interested in this community that I'm a part of, um, yada, yada. So then he, he gave me the link to Heron Project and he connected me with Pam, um, which I, now I've, I've screwed up her title before, but I believe it's the Director of Active Engagement is her formal title. And he connected me with Pam and we connected that same evening. I was in the office later than normal. And that was how it all started. And so I, I, they have races throughout the year um, that you're, you know, that you raise money to donate back to Heron Project. But because they didn't have any races scheduled for my area, Chicago, um, you can do like an own your own race and you can set up a GoFundMe page through them and raise money. So initially it started as just a way to raise money to give back to an organization in, in honor of my brother who struggled and all of those who still have a chance. And so it kind of aligned really nicely with everything I was doing in my own life. Um, but I can tell you that Heron Project has become a crucial part of my great story. And the community of people there are incredible. I can't speak enough about the individuals, how much active engagement I have with them through my Team Heron Project Facebook group. It's amazing. Most of the people I have not ever met, including Pam, um, but I feel like they're family. And, you know, some people are actually recovered addicts. Some people are like me. Some people are family members whose children are addicts or whose family members are addicts. And some people are just there as, as a supportive part of the community. Um, so sometime in like early last year, after I got to know more, and if you go to, it's www.heronproject, and that's H-E-R-R-E-N, and then project.org. Um, it's actually, Chris Heron was an NBA basketball star whose life was derailed because of his opioid and subsequent heroin addiction. Um, this, so that he, makes a little bit more sense. All right, because I, I know the Chris Heron story. All right, yes. So that, so that, right, so that is, is those that's the same thing. Exactly. Okay. So they, I believe, and I, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert on the subject, so I don't want to speak for them, but I am fairly certain that it's three facilities they now have because they just opened one in Virginia, but it's not just their inpatient. I mean, obviously that was not something that was part of my, what I needed in my life, but it certainly was something that my youngest brother who passed needed. Um, I wish I had found them prior to him passing. You know, perhaps he would have gotten the level and quality of care and attention that would have helped him thrive and survive like Glenn is. So, so Glenn is the person that shared with me the link to the registration for the, my very first half marathon. So my first half marathon was in New Hampshire. It was, we have an ongoing joke about it actually, because it was, it was, um, uh, what would be the word I'm looking for, promoted as a downhill race. And let me tell you, there, it was not downhill. <laughs> so he ran in it. And then this girl, Christine, who's also a Heron Project ambassador, it was her very first half marathon. And then a girl, Marissa from Heron Project ran and a guy named Ryan. And Ryan, I didn't meet because he's 
a beast and finished it in like an hour and a half and then had to leave. But Glenn also is kind of a beast. He finished it in an hour and 50 minutes. I finished my first half marathon in two and a half hours. Um, but the, the last, but you, finished. you finished, I did, I did. Um, the last moment of that half marathon, that first race of mine, that first real big challenge, I, it was like around, you know, around a block to the finish line, right? So you came around a corner and then went down and around and back around and that's where the finish line was. So Glenn was sitting at that first turn and obviously I knew what he looked like because of Facebook. So I came around that turn and saw him sitting there waiting for me. And he gave me a low five as I passed by. And honestly, I could get choked up in tears just thinking about it now, because as he calls it the most epic low five of all time, just because it was like, I felt like I had known him forever. And this bond that we had just from my first initial random meeting through that running motivation group to the support of the Heron Project. And then this being my very first half marathon with these people who have become like family. I mean, it was just very symbolic in a lot of ways. It was awesome, a memory that I'll never forget. Um, so now I not only run on their team and to raise money for them, but I run a vending and coffee service business in Chicago. So I spent the majority of last year and the bag is now finally in production. Um, but developing a private label brand of coffee called Dragonolia and a dollar from every bag of whole bean coffee will actually go back to Heron Project in my brother's name. Oh, that so, is so cool. Um, yeah, so on the back of the bag is kind of a little snippet about that and the Live a Great Story. So there will actually be a Live a Great Story sticker in every bag of coffee. And Dragonolia is a brand, real quick, the, the name Dragonolia comes from Dragonfly and Magnolia. Dragonfly is a symbol for my brother. I have a tattoo on my ankle for him, but he thought it was a very spiritual symbol um, on his sobriety journey. And he had a cool story about his last 28 day program around the dragonfly. So he had had a dragonfly tattoo of his own. And then the Magnolia is a Magnolia tree was in my backyard as a child. And my mom would always call me and tell me when it was in bloom because they bloom in a time in Chicago that is very windy and the, the weather is very volatile. So the blooms on the tree don't typically last very long, certainly not more than like two weeks. So when I was living in the city, she would always call me and say, hey, Jennifer, the magnolia tree is in bloom if you wanna come out and check it out. Cause she knew I loved it. I just love magnolia trees, they're beautiful. And um, so even through our very tumultuous relationship when I was a young adult, I would still come out to the house and sit under the magnolia tree with her. So it's a really warm memory I have, something that she and I shared. And so Dragonolia is a name that comes from both of those people that were obviously very special to me that are now gone. And I'm really excited to be able to incorporate what I do for a living, which is sell coffee, um, into this newfound passion that is really rooted my rooted me in my path for the rest of my life. Um, it's a way for me to give back so that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't save my brother. Um, and like you said earlier, you know, nobody can save somebody who's addicted. Like you have to want that bad enough for yourself. And you, if you're not going to do it, then nobody else can do it for you. So I, I know that I couldn't have saved my brother. Um, there are certainly things that I wished I had done differently, but that is what it is. But through this coffee, if there's a way that I can give back and try and help other people that are either just like my sweet 
my sweet little brother, Justin, or other family members that are like me that struggled with an addict as a sibling or struggle with an addict as a spouse or a parent. Um, if, you know, what I do every day for work is able to fuel a vehicle to give back to Heron Project because I believe in them so much. And I believe that the work that they're doing is so crucial. Um, then I, I'm just super grateful for the opportunity. I'm really proud of the project. I absolutely love it. Um, and my wife is obsessed with coffee. So uh, we're going to have to, oh, God, I'll, yeah, we're you gonna have have to get that shit your out. Address and I'll send you some. Yeah, we're going to have to get that worked out. I definitely want to support the cause. Um, awesome. So uh, yeah, it looks like, I think we're coming up on our time here, but before we, uh, before we close out, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell our listeners how they can follow you, how they can get in contact with you. Go ahead, plug yourself through all your platforms. Tell them how to find you, Jen. Okay. So uh, the Dragonolia website will be up and running. It is not yet. So I don't want to lead anybody there, but hopefully within the next month it will be. So it's the word dragon and then O-L-I-A.com, Dragonolia. But me personally, I mean, you can find me, Jennifer Fox on Facebook, on Instagram. I'm, I'm a Fox 73. So that's I, the letter M as in Mary, A-F-O-X-7-3. And then my sobriety group is called Dry 2020s Honey. Um, and you know, I, my goal is really to promote a sober lifestyle for people that might not identify themselves as an alcoholic, but have not figured out how to live a life that they only now see silently in their dreams. And I truly believe that there is a lot of power in choosing to be sober and I think there are a lot of people that don't have, you know, what I say is the Nicolas Cage in leaving Las Vegas style, stereotypical rock bottom. You do not have to hit that to stop and evaluate your relationship with booze and say, this isn't serving me. You don't have to hit some kind of a stereotypical rock bottom that Hollywood has shown us is problematic to say, yeah, this isn't like, this isn't serving me. We can all stop and be honest with ourselves and say, is alcohol making me a better human? I would venture to guess that there is nobody that's gonna say yes to that question. And so we only get one shot at this life, right? And I, I wanna spend the rest of my days in reverence to my brother because he couldn't figure it out because he was an amazing human being, not the addict that heroin turned him into. Um, and he would have had a great life if he could have figured it out. And so I felt like I still have the opportunity to figure mine out. And it would have been just a shame if I had squandered that opportunity. So I, I really do live every day um, in a reverence to him um, because I know he wanted to get better. I know he desperately wanted to get better and be sober and he, he just couldn't figure it out. So I, I felt like it would be an insult to him to continue to live the way I was living. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that's very important for everybody to know. And a great way to close out is, you know, nobody, nobody actively using, whether they're drinking, whether they're drugging, um, whatever it is, nobody that is still active, nobody wants to do that. Um, mm -mm. You know, when we realize we have a problem and sorry, I get like a little emotional talking about this part of myself. Um, yeah. But when we realize we have a problem, we don't want to keep, using we are sick right. um and and we're trust me we want help um even when we say we don't want help we do want help we just can't take help we have trouble accepting help 
And sometimes it just takes different methods. Um, and unfortunately, you know, not everybody wins the fight. Not everybody has a, a sober date they can cling on to. Um, unfortunately, some people lose the battle. And, yeah. you know, it, it hits really tough on me as well. Um, my uncle lost the battle before he, before he could finish fighting. Unfortunately, your brother, the same way. But, you know, if this episode, if, if somebody's uncle or if somebody's little brother is listening and they're still actively using and they know that, you know, they hear how lives are impacted and because we all got to change for ourselves. If, if that story can just resonate with one person and they can find a sober life or even if not completely sober, if they can just find a better life, mm -hmm. then I think our work here, I think we did our job today. I couldn't agree more, Miguel. I really, I am dr driven. I am feeling very passionate about knowing that if I can just inspire one person to live a life that they're proud of, one person. And I have had this gift given to me over the last you know, 13 months of people countless people reaching out to me to say that something I wrote or posted or did inspire them. And the power that I feel in that is what drives me every day. Um, I just climbed the Manitou incline last weekend outside of Colorado Springs, which had been on my bucket list for all of last year. So I know this is going long, but super quick story. I was scheduled to do that. I was plan to, planning to do that climb three times. My brother lives in Boulder. I get out and I have really good friends in, in Westminster outside of Denver. So I get out there multiple times a year. And the two times I was traveling, it was closed because of COVID. And then the third time I was traveling, when it was finally open, the fires got too close to the trail and they closed it again the week I was traveling. So I was never able to do it. So I finally tra traveled last weekend with my dad. We went to see my brother and we drove down on Saturday to do it. And it's 2,768 stairs straight up. <laughs> so, um, and when I got to the top and I'm gonna, I'll post this video on the group so you can see it. When I got to the top, there were, I was videotaping cause I, I climbed it with my brother's girlfriend whose brother drank himself to death the same year our brother overdosed and died. And this guy, Caleb, who I met in 2007 at a 28 day program where my brother was. And so he has also been sober. And so the three of us climbed, I made it to the top first. I turned around to videotape the two of them getting to the top when I caught, because I could hear in earshot, girls talking about doing a shot. They, they were clearly gonna do a shot of something, right? At the top of this climb. Now this was, I'm in good shape. This was not an easy climb. It's 2000 feet of elevation, anywhere from a 45 to a 68% incline, 2,768 stairs up. I mean, it was challenging. So. I pan my video over to these three idiots doing, doing <laughs> Tito airplane bottle size Tito vodka shots, right? They have them like in their arm, they're videotaping themselves. And I kind of laugh and I go back to videotaping my friends coming to the top when I hear them like choking and going, Ugh, uh, like, they, like it didn't taste good, right? So I pan the video back over and the one girl said, laughs and laughs at me videotaping them. And I say on video, you can hear me say, here I climb to the top to celebrate my sobriety. And I see you three, I come up to you three doing a shot of vodka. And the one girl says, laughs and says, oh, I'm sorry. 
I go, oh yeah, no, that's okay. That's hilarious. You'll get there one day. And it didn't dawn on me until after that, because I'm a big believer in finding meaning in everything. And I thought, huh, how interesting. Perhaps I never got to climb this last year because I was meant to be here in this very moment because one of those young college age girl kit girls who clearly did not like that vodka that she just choked down at the top of a really challenging physical event, perhaps she'll remember me, a fairly attractive, fit young woman standing at the top of the Manitou incline, outwardly celebrating her sobriety because those three girls all looked at me like I was a little bit crazy. But it wasn't lost on me that I was supposed to do that three times last year and it just never worked. And I happened to make it to the top first. So I happened to take my phone out to videotape my friends coming up and caught them. And I just, I thought, hmm, I planted a seed today. I planted a seed in one of those girls' minds. I believe that with all my heart. And I think that that could resonate in one of their souls and they will think about that. And that maybe that memory of me will, nag at them until they look at their own drinking, right? It's questionable to celebrate climbing the Manitou incline with shots of Tito vodka. Although I was a dumbass 23 year old at one time too. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I'm just, it was a really profound moment in my life last weekend. I, that's, that is a really yeah. cool story though. But uh, yeah, I definitely want to thank you for being on the episode today. It was definitely Thanks a pleasure to me. have you sharing your story. Um, everybody reach out. Um, lots of cool ways you can get in contact with her and um, follow her story and um, support the Heron Project. So there's a lot of cool information out there. Um, there will also be plenty of ways to tag in the link once this episode is public. But again, thank you awesome. for being on the episode. Um, definitely continue staying healthy. Keep staying fit. And tell us how you're doing that, Jennifer. One day at a time, baby. I love it. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Thanks, Miguel. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. It was a pleasure to have you on, and thank you so much for sharing your story. For any listeners out there, definitely go ahead and find Jennifer on social media and follow her journey, as well as I encourage anybody to also support the Heron Project is doing a lot of really cool things. Uh, definitely also, again, check us out on social media. You can find us on Instagram now at StayingFitODAT. And if you yourself identify as someone in the community and you identify as someone who is struggling uh, with anything at all that we mentioned, feel free to join the community. You don't necessarily have to post or comment right away. You can just sit back and see what it's about until you feel comfortable to share your story. Until next time, everybody out there, please continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time. Migs loves you.